The Confluence Story Gathering Podcast is a production of Confluence, a community-supported nonprofit that connects people to the history, living cultures, and ecology of the Columbia River system. Find us at confluenceproject.org. You have to take those moments where you can get them with American history because it is very dark and you have to explore that darkness and you have to face it. But there are also just incredible moments of knowledge and adventure and love. Welcome to the Confluence Story Gathering Podcast, Indigenous Voices of the Columbia River. I'm Colin Fogarty, Executive Director of Confluence. America's relationship with history is changing, and with it are views of public monuments. Debates are raging in towns and cities across the nation. Some monuments have come down, others defaced. Today on the Story Gathering Podcast, a conversation with writer Sarah Val about how we express our stories and values in public places. Val is the New York Times bestselling author of seven nonfiction books on American history and culture, in which she examines the connections between America's past and present. She was the guest speaker for a Confluence conversation in May 2021 in a partnership between Confluence and Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington. Sarah Val joined us by Zoom from her home in Bozeman, Montana. The genesis of what I'm doing here is I, I write columns for the New York Times opinion piece or opinion section. And um, there was a piece I wrote, was it nearly three years ago, I think, right when all the monument hubbub started and about Confederate monuments. And my piece was about being uh, an enrolled member of the Cherokee tribe and uh, the Cherokee tribe owned slaves. And my great-great-grandfather was a Confederate soldier because the Cherokee tribe, uh, not the entire tribe, but a lot of them, most of them uh, uh, aligned themselves with the Confederacy. And so I was writing, I was writing from that point of view because um, at the Cherokee capital in Tahlequah, there were uh, monuments that have since been torn down, but at the time they were up, of uh, my great-great-grandfather's Confederate general, his name was Stan Wadey, and the Confederate soldiers uh, from the Cherokee Volunteer Regiments. And um, so I was talking about that and how, you know, that was a, that was a particular moment in the, in the, evolution of this question because that was about should there be monuments to traitors to the United States that are on public lands that are supported by taxpayers. And that was a pretty easy question. Although with the Cherokee Confederates, the interesting thing is my great great grandfather, the Confederate was not a traitor to the United States because he was a Cherokee citizen. those monuments have since been torn down. And I have some ambivalent feelings, not about my Cherokee heritage, but about the Cherokee government. Um, as I'm sure a lot of the viewers know, especially those who are enrolled tribal members, being a citizen of a tribe is not unlike being a citizen of any other country. And sometimes you don't agree with what your government is doing. Um, when the Cherokee tribal uh, principal chief 
decided to tear down those Confederate monuments and move them off the Capitol. He said it was because they were put there after Oklahoma statehood by the Daughters of the Confederacy. And he was kind of passing the buck to the Daughters of the Confederacy, even though I haven't looked into it, but I'm sure all the Daughters of the Confederacy were Cherokee. I'm eligible to be a member of the Daughters of the Confederacy because I'm Cherokee. I'm not going to do that, <laughs> but so I have being Cherokee and especially those removed tribes from the Southeast who were removed on the Trail of Tears, who brought their slaves with them to Indian territory. Um, that's a little bit more of a complicated. It's basically I'm the citizen of two former slaveholding nations, and I have a lot of feelings about that. And some of my mm, anger toward the tribe is they did spend quite a bit of the 20th century trying to kick the descendants of the Cherokee freedmen, the descendants of the Cherokee slaves off the tribal roles. And I think it was the Supreme Court told them you can't do that. And I was, I'm definitely in favor in keeping the freedmen in the tribe. And that's what they are now. So um, to me, being Cherokee is political and it informs my view of American history, which is incredibly cloudy, but not boring. Oh, and then at the end of that piece, where things were starting to change with the monument question, and it started to be about Columbus and um, all of these other questionable figures from American history. And at the end, I talked about going to one of the confluence project sites. I knew I was going somewhere with all this. And I have been to the bird blind in the Sandy River Delta outside of Portland. And that seemed to me to be the answer going forward in terms of monuments. First of all, it's beautiful. And uh, there, there was something about that site and that's the bird blind where it's kind of this little, almost like a elliptical tree house on the Sandy River. And there are these very straight wooden slats. And on each slat is written um, the name of one of the species. Is it just birds or it's just birds on that, right? It's uh, birds, fish, and animals. Birds, fish, and animals. And it lists if, you know, these are the species that um, the Corps of Discovery encountered. And they're, they're open slats so you can see the river through there and then you can look at each slat and think about each animal or bird or fish. And one thing I loved about it, it really uh, jibed with the way I experience history as sort of sedimentary rock. You know, there are so many different layers and there are so many ways to engage. You can engage and especially I'm, I become more and more fascinating as the more we you know, destroy our earth of including um, ecological history into whatever history I'm telling. And um, I love how it was about what the explorers encountered, the people and the nature uh, that they encountered as opposed to just to being about their story. And I also liked how the sound you know, um, a lot of these monuments that people are upset about, they're just old, old fashioned sculptures and there's 
nothing wrong with that per se, but it was such an experience. I mean, your, your, um, your monuments are more like architecture or landscape architecture where there's just so much, so many things are happening and there are so many feelings and thoughts you can have. And that, that place, so much like in the Lewis and Clark journals, a lot of it is just them griping, you know? And, and I think William Clark was griping because all the birds were keeping him up at night and you can hear those birds. And um, the whole thing, was just so hopeful and inspiring to me in terms of this discussion because I also went to art school and so many monuments are just so aesthetically backwards or so corny and and there was something just so beautiful and not quiet because there are all the bird noises but um, there was room to breathe and that is that was my uh, that's was my entree into what you guys are doing. Yeah, well, and the the bird. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. It's such a great endorsement of one of our sites. And each one of these sites uses L the Lewis and Clark journals as a recorded moment in time. It's not necessarily about commemorating or honoring. Um, it's not about dismissing Lewis and Clark either. But it's mm -hmm. using these journals as a recorded moment in time as a way of looking at the past. What, how do you think of Lewis and Clark? Like how should we be talking about Lewis and Clark today? They have such an enormous and broad legacy. What do you think? I mean, I have so many thoughts about them. I, I lived in, I was born in Oklahoma and um, I moved here to the Gallatin Valley of Montana when I was 11 years old. And I was just, this is the, our, our valley is the home to the headwaters of the Missouri. Talk about your confluences. This is where um, the Gallatin, the Madison, and the Jefferson uh, converge as the headwaters of the Missouri River. And um, Lewis and Clark, of course, named those rivers because when you look at the Gallatin River, you think, Jeffersonian cabinet official. But so they're very alive. I mean, there was a local historian who, I mean, on the re their return trip, you know, when Lewis and Clark split up uh, Clark and Sacagawea and um, York the slave and that whole party, they came, they came back through uh, the, the Gallatin Valley to go east and they followed buffalo roads that, you know, buffalo herds had carved into the valley, I don't know, five or more thousand years ago. And some local historian tried to figure out where specifically they walked and it was essentially in the vicinity of Main Street, Bozeman and possibly um, in my front yard. And so, they're very alive to us here. I was just out at the, I just went out to the Headwaters um, Park this weekend. And I mean, it's not, it's not as meaningful as your sites because there's, you know, there's signage. The, I don't know if there was ever any kind of offensive signage, but now it's very workmanlike signage there. But you go there and it is where these, the confluence of these rivers. And you and right where so the Jefferson and the Madison kind of converge together, and then you know a little bit maybe a mile away is where the Gallatin um, comes in, 
And where the Gallatin converges with the Missouri, there's this huge rock, Lewis Rock. And that's the rock that, that Meriwether Lewis stood on and like looked across this valley that's home to me. And I think about all that all the time because this, I, I just wrote a piece that's going to be in the New York, New York Times about all the changes in this valley and all the development. And, and we have an insane uh, housing crisis. And, and thinking about what, what he saw and how much change and how the two of them are to blame for everything that's happened in, in some ways in this valley and you know everywhere in across the the whole Missouri and and the Columbia and all that. Um, but on the other hand, this I once was at Monticello and there's that uh, entrance hall that he called the Indian Hall where he displayed all of the artifacts and and specimens that Lewis and Clark sent back to him. And most of them are replicas because, you know, he was a real spender and they had to sell all this stuff. So they have this replica and the, the guy pointed at, you know, there are the elk antlers and stuff like that. And the thing about Jefferson and the Indian Hall is, and that you get at any of these sites at the Missouri River or anywhere along the Columbia or any of your sites is the sense of wonder about this continent. And that's always important to keep in mind because you can understand why people fought over it. This place is miraculous. And you go into the Indian Hall and you can almost feel Thomas Jefferson's excitement about this knowledge and these strange animals and, and these wondrous peoples. And there's this, on the um, railing um, above the hall, there was this, um, the guide pointed and there's a replica of a buffalo hide map of the Missouri River. And when I saw that, I teared up and I was with my twin sister and I looked over and she kind of teared up too, because to us that is home. Do we have any ancestral claim on this valley? None whatsoever, but um, they were right. They were right to want this place and to, you know, fall in love with it for whatever the wrong reasons. But there's something about that story. And then just as a storyteller, um, I mean, one of the things I love about nonfiction as opposed to fiction is I just love coincidence because it just feels, it just has this ring of meaning or magic or something. And, you know, like in that story, which is, an amazing story, you know, just of a, of a trip. It's an amazing piece of journalism too. Like, I mean, one of the great benefits of that expedition was all of the records and the journals they kept along the way about, you know, flora, fauna, um, the Nez Perce, the, the Lakota, like all of these different peoples and places and things. And they, they, they documented that. And, um, but then as Sherman Alexi said about, Sacagawea, she was doing everything they were doing, except she was doing it while breastfeeding, you know, and there's that moment on the journey where, I mean, one reason they're so excited she's Shoshone because they know that the Shoshone have horses and they're going to need horses to get across the Rockies. And um, she's interpreting with this, they run in, they finally meet up with the Shoshone and she's helping them and she's interpreting and she's trying to get them some horses. 
And then she just starts weeping because she realizes this is her long lost brother that she hasn't seen since childhood. And that is just an incredible human moment, you know, of like total coincidence. And um, it just makes me love the truth, you know, like there's something you could never write that in a in a story. But um, that moment is just from a narrative point of view, part of the joy of history, because you have to take those moments where you can get them with American history because it is very dark and you have to explore that darkness and you have to face it. But there are also just incredible moments of knowledge and adventure and love. And um, so I have a lot of, a lot of feelings about, um, about Lewis and Clark. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the, the headwaters of the Missouri, because I think I'm getting this right, my Lewis and Clark history, that that's where Lewis was really waxing philosophical and having this real uh, aspirational moment where he really thought about his life and America and the future and history. But we also know that uh, Meriwether Lewis suffered from severe depression on, on the trip and then, and then afterwards. And I wonder, actually, because we talked a little bit about this the other day, it seems to me like it's almost a metaphor about history, the highs and lows. And so mm -hmm. often in, in our discussions about history, it's either we have so much judgment, it's either so great or it's so terrible, but there's nothing in between. And it seems like where you write is really the in-between part of history. Is that right? I'm not really participating in whatever is going on right now where history is just about approval and disapproval. Um, for one thing, that's just the path to madness, really, but also... I try, I find the most educational, um, the most educational thing is compassion. Um, and I have so much compassion for Lewis. I mean, he, he was a depressive and he did eventually kill himself. And you, and I mean, the, like that journey was just so unbearable so much of the time, you know, they're just starving. And I mean, going up the Missouri against the current you know what a drag that must have been? I mean, when he calls it this immense river, he's not just saying like, oh, he's saying like, oh, what a pain in the neck this immense river is. And, and also, I mean, like we, we know, especially living in the West, like the weather is almost like your God out here. Like in Montana, sometimes it amazes me that people can be so religious because we don't need that. We have winter, you know, it snows 10 months a year. Uh, like winter is like a Norse God that is always, you know, affecting our lives. And, and like when he gets to your neck of the woods and um, the wonderfully named Cape disappointment and all that, um, just the myth, I mean, I'm sure, like, I love the Pacific Northwest. I, we were talking earlier, like, I, I lived in Portland for a year. I grew up in Montana where, you know, Seattle is like our capital city. And I, especially, you know, Montana is so dry. Like, I believe, I believe Lewis's um, ink would dry up while he was working on his journals. It's so dry here. And then they get to, you know, your neck of the woods and it's just so darn wet. And that whole winter they had to spend there was just, you know, pretty pretty miserable if you don't want it to rain every day. Um, and like just the facts of nature, like they're, they're like, you know, nature's their boss. And um, 
there's something quite, I mean, who can't identify with that if you live where you do or you live where I do, you know? One of the things that you pointed out is that the journals really do document all of the homelands that they yes. pass through. And in fact, at Cape Disappointment, one of Maya Lynn's pieces is a boardwalk that lists all of the homelands that they pass through uh, as, as you get to the, the final uh, uh, steps of the journey on the, the beach of the, of, of, um, uh, uh, at the Pacific Ocean. So, I, you know, how do you balance, how do you bring the native voice back into the discussions about- I mean, for one thing, the, that's such a, that's, I mean, that is such a brilliant, genius way to depict that. And it's so moving and it's so simple and so elegant. Um, and I mean, one of the things, I've noticed, especially being a member of a formerly Southeastern tribe that was thoroughly missionaried before Indian removal in 1838. Um, I mean, one reason I feel some alienation toward the tribe is that it's in Oklahoma and it's in Oklahoma. You know, it's, it's mostly, not everyone, but it's mostly a very conservative Christian culture. Um, and part of that is because of the history, you know, I mean, one reason that like they just had European contact so early and all of the disease that was wiping out the East Coast tribes, we kind of gave up their traditional spirituality because here are these white people who lived and clearly their God was superior because, you know, it wasn't killing them of smallpox. And so some of that is part of the history of the tribe and um, I mean, even them owning slaves, but, but that was a process, you know, because of the Europeans and you can always find in history, if there's something you find vexing or offensive, you can always go back to the record and find some explanation or some partial explanation, like with the Cherokee, uh, the government of the United States is pressuring them to give up hunting and, and give up their traditional culture. Uh, George Washington gives a speech to the Cherokees where he's, he's, he's encouraging them to engage in agriculture, commercial agriculture in the American South in the 18th and 19th centuries. So he's saying, you guys should grow cotton. And we all know what comes with cotton in Georgia, North Carolina, and Tennessee. So there's that. I mean, the other thing is because the Cherokee is such a, they're, they're such a specific culture. Um, I'm more prone to see each native, um, each native tribe as its own country, as its own sovereign nation. And so like, um, and, and, and Lewis and Clark sort of capture that. I mean, basically, you know, their descriptions of different people's are sort of clouded by how each people treats them, you know, like they're, they're fairly gung-ho on the Nez Perce who, you know, had a meeting, like, do we kill these guys or not? And they decided, I guess not. Um, and then the Lakota are just, you know, they're just completely uh, terrified of the Lakota, but, you know, they do kind of capture the geography and how each tribe has its own culture and also its own sense of place. And so that's one thing I love about what you guys are doing at Confluence because there is such a, I mean, there's no, 
It's another thing that's hard about being Cherokee because we were severed from the ancestral lands. So you completely were completely severed from all of that. Um, whereas um, I know like the Northwest Coast tribes were jostled around and you know, that's no picnic either, but the ones who are more or less in the same region, um, like all that, um, like fish is so integral, right? And I love that, um, which confluence site is it? Is it at Cape Dis Disappointment where there's the fish cleaning table? Yes. So this to me is just the, it's almost like a perfect monument. I don't know if that's the word, if we even want to use that word for what it is, because um, if you just looked at that as sculpture, is it, it's made out of basalt, right? That's right. So it's, and basalt is native to that spot, right? That's exactly right. So you have this, this beautiful, beautiful basalt and it's made into what seems like a sculpture, but it's this useful fish cleaning station, right? And the people, the people use it, right? That's exactly right. Which is also more, you know, the European notion of art for art's sake gets, it doesn't really apply to a lot of non-Western cultures. You know, if you go, like my favorite museum is probably the Anthropology Museum in Me Mexico City. And none of that was made as art, you know, none of those Mayan or Aztec objects were created just to be pretty. They're, they're, they have spiritual or real use, you know, they're functional or they're functional for rituals. And there's something about that fish cleaning table that is so profound, I think, and um, that it's both elegant and beautiful and, you know, this, wonderful piece of sculpture, but that you can use it to clean the fish, which is so part of, which, which is that the Chinooks? It's a Chinook homeland, but of course uh, the entire Columbia River system that consider themselves salmon people. Yeah, and so it's that the people can go there and use that and participate in something that is both spiritually meaningful, but also, you know, they eat the fish, I assume. <laughs> Like, there's something so pragmatic and, and down to earth about that. I mean, that's what I, I, I like about your sites is there's room for all this highfalutin, you know, talk and thoughts and ideas and history or whatever. But, but um, it's, it's, um, it is so down, literally down to earth. Sarah Val is a New York Times bestselling author. Her most recent book, Lafayette in the Somewhat United States, explores both the ideas and the battles of the American Revolution. This program was a partnership between Confluence and Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington. To find out more about Confluence and the five completed sites along the Columbia River system, check out our website, confluenceproject.org. Remember, Confluence is a community-supported nonprofit we can only do this work because of the generous support from the Friends of Confluence, and that's you. Join us today at confluenceproject.org. Thanks for joining us for the Confluence Story Gathering Podcast. For more episodes, visit confluenceproject.org or wherever you get your podcasts.